Thank you. Good morning. We're uh, in the letter of James, Faith Works, and uh, we're in the first chapter. Today we're going to focus on verses 9 through 11, but I'd like to, um, to backtrack and kind of pick up the theme, and so I want us to begin from verse 2 and run through the uh, verses that we're going to focus on, which are 9, 10, and 11. I think this will show us that James is still on the subject of tests of faith, even in these three verses. If you haven't been with us, these will uh, uh, remind you a little bit of what we've been looking at since we began uh, learning from James. Verse 2, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness or perseverance. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also with the rich man the rich man will fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Well, as I said, James is still talking about tests of faith. But here, in these three verses in particular, even though the test of faith, the joy that we are to consider, um, the joy associated with the blessing that God has for us in the midst of trials, that joy in the face of tests, uh, we are to continue to have in view, even as now James talks about the low. It's translated poor, but he begins by saying, you who are low. Now, the word, it literally means low, but it is often rendered, you know, abased, uh, the person who's in dire straits, and the poor. So the poor, you who are poor, he says, boast in your high position. And then conversely, he turns around and he says, uh, you who are rich, not high, but rich, he uses the word rich or wealthy, you who are wealthy, you should boast, he doesn't have to use the word, it's implied, he says, you're to boast in your low position. And when James talks 
as he does here about low and high, rich and poor, you know what he's telling us? He's telling, that the, he's telling you and me that the world in which he lived, that was a world of comparison. That was a world of competition. That was a world where people were seen as superior or inferior. In other words, some people looked up to people other than themselves or looked down on people other than themselves. It was a world of class and stratification. That's why we find the word boast. Boasting, bragging, and pride. Some are seen, like I said, in such a world as inferior or superior. In a dog-eat-dog -dog world of comparison, competition, and superiority. And you know what? The world that James was writing in when he wrote this letter and the world that we are living in, in which we are reading this letter, it hasn't changed. We use, of course, the word boast pretty negatively most of the time. Look at me. I mean, that's kind of what we mean when we talk about boasting. Look at me, or I'm better than you. But the word boast, as it's used in the New Testament, it occurs 37 times. 35 of those times, Paul uses the word boast. And he uses it in a kind of a bad sense, but he also uses it in kind of a good sense. And so you have to take the use of the word in context. And you, you know where the other two uses of boast are? In the letter of James, the one we just read, and there was one implied in the next verse, verse 10, but also there is another in chapter 4, verse 16, and there James is also you, talking about the wealthy in chapter 4, verse 16, about their pursuit of their plans and how they're going to go here and do that and make their money and so forth. And James says this, he says, you boast in your arrogance. See, that boast is an expression of arrogance. And he says, that kind of boasting is bad, or we translate it evil. It's not a good thing. Well, now that we know a little bit about boasting and the world in which James is writing, and we realize that our world is just like that world, dog-eat-dog, -dog, world of comparison, competition, and uh, superiority, is this not the world in which you live, or is this just the world that I grew up in? Well, anyway, it is a world of comparison, competition, and superiority. And I want to illustrate it for, for you in my, with my life. And, and, and really, I think this begins when we're quite young. I, I mean, we venture out into the world. When I went out, I mean, I went from the loving 
nest where my mom and dad uh, cared for me. And I got into school and started playing with other kids. And all of a sudden, uh, you, you develop a sense of self. And you become kind of self-conscious. And how do you do that? Well, uh, like I said, we start to realize that our position in life is kind of shaped by how we see one another. And that has a sense of an impact on our notion of who we are in this world. In grade school, a fellow student, just a kid, I think I was five, six maybe, he said, uh, well, he just called me Dumbo. Well, we don't have any pictures. Well, they're working on it. But you don't need pictures of Dumbo. Oh, there we go. Yeah. I love Dumbo. But now it was being used as a kind of a term of scorn that I have big ears. And here's a picture of me. Um, I'm on the right there with my hands behind my back. And you can see, even though that's a kind of a difficult picture, it couldn't make it as big as I would have liked. It gets a little oily. But um, I've got pretty big ears. And, you know, I went home that day after school, and I told my mom, um, this kid, he called me Dumbo because I have big ears. And she goes, what? They're not that big. Wouldn't, wouldn't you expect that of mom? You know, and she says, John, uh, you know, they might be just a, a little bit, but, you know, they give me a butch, so she goes, we can let your hair grow out a little, and you're going to grow into those years. And uh, you shouldn't let that bother you because you're a cool kid, and I love you, and yada, yada, yada. So who did I believe? Who did I, seriously, listen, who did I put my faith in? Whose word did I live by? That's how faith fits into this rough dog-eat-dog world in which we live. Because the, the world is going to classify you as low or high. In fact, you'll classify yourself and you'll classify others. You may not call them Dumbo, but you'll label them. You'll tag them. In a world, it's all about comparing and competing and being superior. And into this world comes this great truth about Jesus Christ, and it turns all those highs and lows on their heads, and everything becomes different. You know, you never outgrow these things. This, uh, I was called Dumbo, like in the first or second grade, but just yesterday, I was called Papa Smurf. They meant it endearingly. And some of you, if you haven't seen Papa Smurf, I'm not going to put it on the screen, but <laughs> just look at me. And you know what to look for. 
But the thing is, is that where are you going to find your stability? Where are you going to anchor your soul? You know, what's going to take care of your heart? We have a a love-shaped heart that everyone is trying to fill with love, trying to fill with kindness and acceptance. God created us this way. But he created us this way because he is alone the one who is big enough to fill our need for love. And when we're looking around us in the world and trying to size ourselves up in relation to what the world says is high or low and what's superior or inferior, we're going to be a wash. We are going to be that double-minded person that James is talking about. You see, when he says, ask God for wisdom in the midst of your trial, he's saying with a singleness of heart and mind, put your trust in the Lord and listen for his guidance and direction as to what's important and what your life is all about in the midst of difficulties. But we can't even hear him if, like me, as a first grader, I just can't trust my mom as much as I, in a way, trusted the assessment of a fellow kid making fun of me in an effort to make him feel bigger and better. We never outgrow it. But we can change it in Jesus Christ. And the great tragedy is if we've come to that place where we've said, I'm going to put my faith in Christ, the last thing we want to do is go back to living in that tug-of-war world in which we live by those kinds of rules, trusting in labels in a dog-eat-dog world rather than trusting in God and starting to navigate to where he wants to take us rather than the kind of choppy seas of this world. And so, here is the true assessment of boasting. This is from Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 23 and 24. And I, I would really encourage some of you to commit this to memory, at least reflect on it, Maybe print it out, put it someplace where it comes before your eyes, and meditate on it. This is the Lord speaking. Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. So the wise man has wisdom, but don't boast in your wisdom. Let the mighty man boast not in his might. He's a mighty man. He's a man of strength, but he shouldn't boast in his strength. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. He has riches, but he should not boast in them. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices, now listen, steadfast love. justice, righteousness, 
and knows me, that I am that Lord, and I delight in these things. What's righteousness? What's steadfast love? What's justice? Um, Jesus talked about it, but he didn't use just those words. We're more familiar with expressions like this, uh, and they've even made it out there into the uh, secular world without any attribution to Jesus or the Bible. It's called the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. You know what that is? That's justice. That's, that's fairness. That's equity. Or how about the second part of the great commandment? The one that comes to us when we do fulfill the first part. When we love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, strength, we love our neighbor as ourselves. That's justice. When you love them as you love yourself. In other words, you don't defraud them, you don't lie to them because you don't defraud yourself and you don't lie to yourself. You treat others with the same dignity that you treat yourself. You talk about them that way. Right? And in, in this, we even, we even see not just equanimity, but we see generosity and love. Love that's not conditional. That's why it's called steadfast love. Jesus, Peter, the Apostle Paul, and James, across the pages of the New Testament, this theme, this truth that the Lord himself says, don't boast in those other things. Boast in this, that you know me, and I delight in steadfast love, justice, righteousness in the earth. You see, that's God's amen. I loved it that we sang yes and amen. This is God's yes and amen. And that's what we're supposed to boast in. That's what James is saying here in verses 9 and 10 when he, when he addresses the low or the poor and when he addresses the rich or those who are high up. Look up if you're down. Are you down? It may not be poor. It's a larger classification. Obviously, we think of material things that's the way his readers would tend to think. That's where we class people in relation to material things. That's their worth. That's their measure. You know, what's your portfolio? What's your income? What kind of car do you drive? How do you carry yourself? You know, the clothes you wear, the handbag, the shoes, all of that stuff. We class a person's worth that way. And it's shameful. I knew it was shameful just from the Word, just from our God, just from Jesus, but I've grown to appreciate it with life experience. James says, in the eyes of the world, you may be low, but not God's eyes. What are we doing when he says, 
when he says, boast in your high position, in a way we're lifting our eyes and becoming, in a sense, by setting our gaze on who Jesus is, we become alive in Christ. We become alive in Christ. I mean, Jesus isn't just an artifact of history. It's, it's, it's not just a fascination for us to read or study the historical Jesus or know all the ins and outs about, about Jesus. That's like the religion of Christianity class. We can know all that stuff, but if we express faith in Jesus, then, of course, we begin to see ourselves in light of what Jesus has done, what Jesus says about us, who Jesus is to us. Look at what James says in chapter 2, verse 5, about the poor. Lest we think that he's just double-talking and sweet-talking the poor, as though, you know, he can kind of lull them. Oh, yeah, you know, uh, be warmed, be fed, go in peace. I'm going to pray for you, brother. Hope that everything turns out all right, you know, as they continue to live in rags and sip stone soup for dinner and dwell or go home to a shack that isn't theirs because they're roosting on somebody else's land. James actually says, God chose those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him. You see, that's where it begins because the real depth of human life is not satisfied through material things. The real ultimate need of the human heart is not material. You can pour material things in without end. And we call that even greed. It cannot be filled. It's a bottomless pit because it's a spiritual need that we have in our heart. And that's what God fills through Jesus Christ. And James here is saying, you are high in the kingdom of God. In 2 Corinthians 8, 9, here's really the thought behind this it's expressed in the words of Paul to the Corinthians. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, he became poor for our sakes, that by his poverty we could become rich. He who was truly wealthy became poor for our sakes, that by his poverty we could become rich. These aren't just riches, I mean, verses to hang on the wall. These are verses that really are subversive to the whole nature of the way our society, our culture around the world operates. And it establishes a new institution of value grounded in Jesus Christ so that no matter where you see yourself on the spectrum of material worth or the worth that the, the world puts on you, in in God's eyes, you have the value and worth of Jesus Christ. In a moment, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. We take that bread and that cup, and what do they represent? They represent Jesus' death. He gave his life for you, 
And what does that mean? That means you are worth a son of inestimable worth. You are worth a son to God. That's your rank. That's your status. That's your worth. That's your value. If somebody says you have big ears or you look like Papa Smurf, you do not buy that for a second. Here, what, what happens when you buy into that? You feel sorry for yourself. Why was I born this way? Poor me. What am I going to do? How can I change their opinion? You know, I'm going to grow hair over my ears. I become, you know, fixated on fixing my problems, pour money into it, seek acceptance and approval everywhere I go. But basically, I've been sidelined for God. I'm all focused on myself, but I'm immobilized. I'm a very little earthly good. I'm not giving because I'm deficient. Don't you see the truth? If you are not deficient, if you are satisfied in God, if you are fully loved, you have love to give. You have life to pour out. You have a difference that you can make. And there's a power from within that adds a dignity to whatever your luck. You know, it's the people who are weak in the eyes of the world that are empowered with God. When people see that in action, they say, man, I want some of that. Because there's not a person in this world, really now, if you get this, it will really help you. Everyone you admire, everyone that is of a celebrity level value, every person in this world thinks that they are not enough. No matter how many times they're splashed across the pages of magazines and televisions and billboards and movie screens, Everyone thinks they're not good enough. Everyone thinks they're deficient because every person, including you, in this world is hungry to have that love-shaped heart filled. And there's a greed in that that can never be satisfied. And it turns everyone into selfish, self-centered, egotistical, people. And God wants to turn that on its head and reverse it in Jesus Christ. And he will as you walk in faith, as you trust him. So if you're down, look up. And if you're up, look down. We just read 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, where Jesus became poor for our sakes that we might become rich. And uh, listen, there's a lot here, but we become dead to self in Jesus Christ. That's the power of Jesus Christ in our lives. We become dead to self that we might become alive to him. And the fact of the matter is in, first, uh, uh, in Philippians chapter 2, Paul says, 
you can set others above yourself if we have this attitude which was in Jesus Christ. He who was equal with God did not consider equality a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, becoming like us and a slave to boot. That means, uh, in other words, he was not just human, but he was among the lowest class. The person who is without freedom, the person who is without rights, the person who is subject to any master, and he gave his life for us. Wow. Why do we, James says, we need to look ahead in all we do and entrust ourselves to God because life is short. Maybe you've seen the magnificent bloom in the foothills. I used to live up in Northern California, so we went to Blossom Hill. Poppy Hill, beautiful this time of year. Just the hills are blanketed in beautiful flowers. Jesus, <clears throat> he says, why do, you, why do you worry? Right, Matthew 6, why do you worry? I tend to worry, but he says to me, John, don't worry. And he points to the flowers of the field. You can't be clothed in more wealthy raiment than these flowers. But James says, those flowers come and go. The flowers that are up there right now, maybe you'll take a drive this afternoon and admire them. But if you go back in June or even late May, they'll be gone. That's, that's James, James says, the length of life. I love life, don't you? I've lived a little life. I got to tell you, you want to make a, something of your life. You want it to count. You want to invest in other people. You want to give back. It, that's the fullest form of life. And that happens naturally if you follow Jesus Christ. If you recognize that life is short, I got to quit trying to be all that I can be in the eyes of this world and invest my life chasing something I'll never catch, never find, and never fulfill, no matter how I pursue it. That's what James is talking about here. He says, it ain't going to happen unless we come alive in Christ. And that's what we do when we look at this bread and this cup. This bread and this cup represent Jesus Christ. When we take this bread and this cup, we are putting our faith in him. That's why we're reminded of it. Because as strange as it may seem, we can, we can forget to do this. I, I know this. We can come to church. And it's, that's a good thing. We need these regular reminders. We need to invest in each other, deepen our relationships in one another. But even with 
those regimens, sometimes we forget to put our faith in Jesus. Or we just put certain kinds of things into his hands. Some are maybe too precious to entrust. We're reminded when we take this bread and this cup because this is the real profession of faith because in holding this bread, we're holding Jesus, which he gave for us. And in holding this cup, we are looking at the new covenant, new relationship that we have that was sealed with his blood, which is represented in the cup. Let's prepare our hearts to express our faith in Jesus again today. On the night he was betrayed, he took bread, he blessed, broke it. He gave it to the 11 disciples. One had left to betray him. And their confession, their commitment of faith to Jesus Christ changed the world. Many times that number are here this morning. taken deep. In the same way, after supper, the cup also, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. His life sealed a new covenant that's why we have a New Testament. That's why we have a new life. That's why we are a new people. All of you drink it. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now, if you will, pass the cups toward the center. I want to remind you that uh, today we have the opportunity to give to the deacons fund to help the poor, the low, those who are in a bind or a vice or a pickle or a difficulty. We've all been helped at one time or another we are products of the help of others, the care of others, those who have invested in our lives. This is an opportunity to us to give, and it gives us a chance then to answer the material needs of people who come to the church from outside or within our own church family looking for a hand up and some help, and we answer them with these things that are dedicated to God and the gospel. So if you're able to give this morning, please give generously. Now, if you'll stand, I just want to remind you while you're doing that, at the heart of the gospel is the love of our Lord, our God. Don't ever forget that. You are loved. And that is the beginning of every great step and act of faith. 
So may you go in the love of God and his blessing in Jesus Christ and his power in his Holy Spirit. God bless you. Amen.